All right, we're going to begin. If you don't have a set of notes, you probably want to grab them. They start on page 7 today. They start on page 7. Uh, we're going to keep trying to chug away at this, so I'd like to jump right in. We're going to start this morning looking at um, the era of civil government to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, and maybe we'll get the Mosaic Law in this morning as well. So I want to begin with a word of prayer in just a moment. I'll give a, a few minutes for the crowd to come on in and disrupt us. Um, so let me, let me back up a little bit and give you a little bit of an overview before we open in prayer. So when you think about God's work through human history, uh, we should be aware, and I think you are kind of intuitively as we read the Old Testament, that the Lord um, shifts how he manages people. We've called those dispensations uh, historically. That's not a dispensational term, ironically enough. Like if you go and read something else that's not dispensational, they'll use that word dispensation. So it's not particularly dispensational to use that word even. But it's a recognition that just like maybe a parent trains a, a three-year-old differently than they train a 13-year-old, differently than they treat their 23-year-old or 33-year-old married child. The relationship is still parent-child, but how you relate is, is dependent on a lot of different factors. When we read the Old Testament, sometimes the reader can be unaware of those different factors, and most of us, if we don't deliberately work to, to think what's happening, we miss the beauty of what God is doing in the Old Testament, and then I think we miss understanding the Old Testament. Like, we, we put ourselves as kind of like in the same place as them, not recognizing how there's differences, and then we're inconsistent because there are some similarities, and we should be really uh, enjoying reading the Old Testament. Sometimes we just don't see the similarities in the way that Old Testament kind of hits us between the eyes with, this is us. We act like this, we behave like this, we respond like this, and we need to have faith and hope like they failed to. And so we really want to read the Old Testament with good eyes that have a, a, an awareness of what's really happening in the scenes before us as we read the Scripture. So every dispensation or every kind of era is, is marked, I think, by, at least in our notes, the way we talk about it, is there are some continuing principles, and then there's, there's some things that don't continue. It's helpful to see those, because that's, that's an established pattern, and it's helpful then for us as we look at our current responsibilities before the Lord to know that they're different than theirs and that there's some similarities. So let me ask you, what is one of the differences between the early, like the first two eras, the first two dispensations, and us today in terms of diet? What could they eat? What, what could they not eat? Now, theoretically, you're correct. They could not eat pork, but they could not eat any meat. So, I mean, pork, pork is just one of the not eating type of things. So they couldn't eat any living animal. They couldn't eat fish, pork. Uh, there was no, you had to be vegetarian from Garden of Eden all the way through Noah. Noah was the first one that had God's blessing to eat meat. Uh, eat, eat, eat basically the meat of living animals that had been um, killed and butchered. So even there, I think in the, New Te or in the Old Testament, you'll see the stipulation not to eat uh, living animals, it seems kind of gross, but probably um, even re reflected in Acts 15, strangled things, kind of the, the maybe some of the more gross practices of, of pagans who are doing stuff cultishly in worship. All right, so we're going to start on page 7. Let me open with a word of prayer first. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, as those who are trying to enter into the work of understanding, interpreting, and putting together um, a system of thinking so that we can come to texts with good understanding, uh, we are in need of divine help. Uh, we do not have the capability, we do not have the mind or the insight to know these things without the help of the Spirit. So through the work of, of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law, that we might be more like your Son, and we might be more capable and equipped to worship well, and we might be better able to speak to others about the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, shape our minds so that our hearts and our lives could be reflecting the image of Christ more accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to look at civil government. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, so the flood has just happened in Genesis 9. Noah is surviving with his seven other family members. And God begins to 
interact with Noah on this new basis of revelation he's about to give. In fact, if you were to go back to Noah, uh, back to Noah, Genesis 8.20, you'll see Noah built, built an altar to the Lord. He takes every clean animal and every clean bird and offers a burnt offering on the altar. The Lord smells the soothing aroma. Yahweh says to himself, I will never again curse the ground. Because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. And so the Lord makes this kind of permanent covenant where he says, as long as the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night will not cease. So the Lord makes a covenant that he'll keep the uh, cycle of weather. I, I tentatively think that this is the first cycling we see of weather. My assumption is before this that we didn't have precipitation, right? If you go to the beginning of the flood, you probably didn't have the regular um, cycles that we currently experience. That this is actually something God establishes and says he will keep all the days of the earth. Then come to chapter 9. God blesses Noah. And he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Right? This, so this is one of those continuing principles. This is still the duty of mankind is to take this this land that God has given us, the whole entire earth, to do work in it. And the work of, do, uh, like the work of doing requires more than just a, a man and his wife or his three sons. So, so he has to be fruitful, multiply, and the multi multiplication of men actually helps us do the dominion mandate, which is to govern the earth, to fill it, and to subdue it. Verse 2, the fear, of the, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. So can he now eat pork? Yeah. Bacon is good. Okay. Um, as with the green plant, I give to you. So apparently lima beans are still on the table too. Uh, verse 4. However, flesh with its life, that is blood, you shall not eat. So I'm not sure if this is, and I've always struggled with this a little bit. But it seems to be the point is you can't eat something while it's living. Like think vampirism as, a, as opposed to making sure the meat has all its blood drained. I think it's generally something you do when you butcher it well anyway. But it, it, there seems to be probably some cultic background to this stuff that it just shows a, a carelessness about life. Remember, life and blood seem to be kind of equivalents. And that God wants these things to be butchered well and not to be part of some cultic practice where you're life-stealing. Um, but I'm not sure it's, we need to go further into that. It's interesting that the New Testament still has that command in it. Like, like you, you just, there's certain things you don't do. All right? Uh, five, surely I will require your life blood from every living thing I will require. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of the man. For what? Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth, and multiply in it. Uh, God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, uh, even every last beast of the earth. Indeed, I will establish my covenant. All flesh will never again be cut off by water of the flood, and there shall never be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is a sign of the covenant I am giving between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it and remember everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It's kind of a cool thing. God hangs up his weapon of war, his bow, in the sky for us all to see it's been retired. And every time it rains, we see God's bow in the sky retired. No more is he going to do battle with us and dump a flood on the earth and kill every living creature. All right, so God gives new revelation. Some of, the, some of the high points here are not only can man eat meat, what is, what is God doing in regard to other people? What happens if you kill someone? <laughs> we get killed. 
Yeah, now this is like a, the institution we would say of government. Who is responsible to, to deal with the murderer? Mankind is not God. So who's been entrusted with the, the force of judgment and execution? Why are we to do this? This is really essential for capital punishment debate among believers especially. Why do you and I have a moral obligation toward capital punishment? We're made in the image of God, so what is, what is capital punishment about? Okay, I heard destroying the image of God. Someone over here spoke. Justice for whom? Who is the injured party? God is. So, so a lot of times, and I was, it, it, to me it's always interesting to listen to, to news talk about stuff. Because they have such a, a, a warped view of what is valuable in all of life. But it'd be things like, you know, capital punishment, even the victim's family doesn't think he should die. And I'm like, oh, wow. Who do you think the victim is here? Because they got the wrong victim, don't they? Who's the victim in every crime against mankind? Our God is. Our God is the one who's given us these rules. If we treasure and value God, we are pro-capital punishment. To be less than that is to devalue the image of God. The real victim in, in crime is not the people, but the one who made them. Just as much as if you go out and hurt my child, I will be angry with you. You've sinned against me and my child. And I, I think most parents get that. And most dads especially know that their job is to protect their children and feel wronged when you do damage to them. Yes? Right. Yeah, they should be in this class. I said they should come to this class. <laughs> Romans, Romans 13 would, would say otherwise. Where, where the Bible says, and I think it's a euphemism, but the government bears the sword. And they're actually a servant of God is what Romans 13 says. You know, bearing the sword is not for spanking. Bearing the sword is lopping off heads. It's a euphemism for capital punishment. So when in Romans 13, Paul says the government is carrying the sword to execute capital punishment is his point, And it does so as a servant of God. Again, who is the ultimate agent for government. Yeah, and to whom is our government responsible? Not we the people. God says me. Right? Okay, Revelation, page 7. God establishes government. Life is protected. Okay, when I say government, I mean man holding man accountable. So you and I might start with the proposition of who am I that I would be the one to execute judgment on another person? Right? Like, who am I to, to hold someone accountable? And the answer ought to be an obedient person. And that's why we establish organized justice, courts, juries, things like that, so that it's not personal. It's actually an expression of divine justice, not personal vengeance. Number two, protection from wild animals. God places fear. I mean, at this point, both humanity and wildlife is in serious, fragile jeopardy. How many people are alive in the world when this covenant is made? Eight, right? Nona's wife, his three boys, and their wives. So there's six kids and two adults. And when I say kids, again, those kids are like a couple hundred years old. Um, but they're his offspring. Um, there's not many. I mean, if, if a tiger comes in and, and violently attacks, he kills a handful of them, and the human race is done. Right? It's over. So the Lord, Lord puts fear into the animals so that they, they stay away from mankind and don't um, cause uh, the extinction of humanity. Uh, number three, food is provided. Uh, and, and perhaps part of the fear of animals is also God protecting them from us. They're also very fragile. Adam and, and his sons, or excuse me, Noah and his sons go on a, a safari and all of a sudden, there's whole strings of animals that are gone that God has gone out of his way to protect by putting them in the ark. Uh, so there's probably mutual protection here and God giving um, safeguards for life. Um, 
life is protected from God's justice. God says that he will hang up his battle bow. He will no longer use a flood to kill all of humanity for as long as the earth remains. Man is responsible to respond in faith to God's covenant with Noah by obeying the stipulations to protect life. Mankind was to be fruitful and fill the earth. What are they supposed to do with the earth? They're supposed to spread all over it, right? To, to fill it all. I don't remember the word the Legacy Bible used here, but um, there was a, uh, an interesting word they, they used, I think, at one point on this, but uh, there's this idea of just spreading throughout it. Man was to continue to believe the gospel that you saw at the beginning in Genesis 3, to offer sacrifices for sin, submit to the Spirit, to reproduce, and collectively to protect life. Failure. Just right off the bat, Noah gets drunk. I mean, the way the Bible describes it, it's, it's like verse 18. Noah and the sons who went out of the ark. Verse 20. Noah, being a man of the land, planted a vineyard. 21. He drank wine and became drunk and uncovered himself. It's like three verses into the narrative of this new pristine Eden. We have a drunk man naked in front of his kids. This is not okay, just in, in case you haven't read the whole story. So there's immediate failure. Noah shows that he's incompetent to rule. It is interesting. I think it's the book of Proverbs that indicates it's not for kings to drink wine. Part of ruling and leading well is being in your right mind. Uh, I think all believers are really carefully warned against drunkenness. If you're not in control of your body or your mind, unless there's some medical condition that you know, you're being put under for, uh, you are doing wrong. You are not managing your life well to be drunk or intoxicated. Number two, motivated by pride and anxiety in chapter 11, mankind attempts to make a one-world society to build a tower to reach God rather than trusting by faith in God to reach to them. A Tower of Babel. Judgment. Ham's offspring, the Canaanites, were cursed. Who are the Canaanites? Where do they live in about 1500 B.C.? Anyone know? Where? Yeah, do you guys remember, like, Israel comes into this land we call the promised land, and who lives in the promised land? Canaanites. You got to tuck that one away. Because when do the Canaanites get condemned? For the sin of Ham, the sexual sin of Ham, when we come into the Canaanites and we see their, their condemnation being executed by Israel when they come in in judgment, you've heard people talk about the word genocide or something like that. This is merely God bringing to fruition a promised judgment. And ironically, who is the one person who is rescued from the land of Canaan that we know by name? Rahab, whose occupation is sexual sin. I think you see both grace and justice in the narrative of Canaan. That is, there's still a messed up place when it comes to sexual sin, as demonstrated by, by Rahab. And yet God offers grace to the repentant sinner, even of that type of sin. I think it's a really a sweet storyline in Scripture to remind us um, to repent while there's still time. Judgment. Uh, Ham, Ham is judged. Number two, languages were confused. People were scattered. This is probably an act of grace, not merely judgment. Right? When God could have executed all those who were sinning, he instead uh, forced them to scatter. Through no credit of their own, they then filled the earth. And there, there's a kindness there where the Lord says, well, if you're not going to obey, I'm going to help you. That way I don't have to rejudge you immediately. Um, and, and in some ways, I do think the languages then have been a judgment as well. Like, isn't that one of the challenges we face, that languages create cultures, divides, and hostilities? That languages actually represent cultures and differences that we have a hard time with even today. Grace. God accepts Noah's sacrifice in chapter 8. God blesses Shem. When you see, you know, like, the three sons of, of Noah. Anyone? Shem, Ham, Japheth. Okay, so Shem is Semitic. So the Semitic people, when we think of Semites or the Semitic people, we think of whom? Jewish people. So someone who's anti-Semitic, hates Jewish people, 
Uh, so Shem is the father of the Jewish people. And, I, you know, we have that curse of Ham. So we know Ham is the father of the Canaanite people if we were to follow their lineages. Okay, so God accepts Shem through whom Abraham will be born. God takes steps to preserve life by putting the fear of man in animals. God confounds languages. Okay, fellowship and government. Fellowship was still based on the faith and the forgiveness through the sacrifice promised in Genesis. I think you see Enoch fulfilling that, that type of thing, even though it's not particularly in this um, dispensation. After the flood, God introduced additional constraints through human government. I mean, frankly, that's one of the main constraints in our culture, isn't it? It's not scripture, it's not the church, it's that people fear punishment. And when you take away the fear of punishment, you get San Francisco and L.A., right? Crime thrives because no one's afraid of, of punishment. Continuing principles, you guys can see those. I think I've kind of repeated myself, and so I'll, I'll just move on. All right, page nine, dispensation of promise, Abraham to Mosaic law. The era of promise is named because Abraham is given multiple promises, and it seems to be the way in which God governs Abraham particularly. This is about 290 B.C. is where we see Abraham living and getting these covenants, and it seems to be the governing way in which Israel responds to God all the way up until the law is given on Sinai in the 1440s. All right, Revelation. We have the Abrahamic covenant. A seed would be blessed and fill the earth. Uh, this promise is enlarged and specified um, through, through the general provisions and promises of Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, we have this idea. A seed of Eve is going to be born. Who are, It doesn't say born, but the seed of Eve is going to do what to the serpent? Crush it. And if you follow Genesis, there's this like strain of blessing. And then Abraham picks it up in, in Genesis 12, and we follow that through. And, and probably the most prominent storylines where you see that blessing is like the Esau-Jacob um, narratives. What, what happens to the blessing? Well, it doesn't really get divided. You guys remember Jacob? What does Jacob do? There, there are two things. First, like he, he pilfers the birthright for a bowl of soup, Right? I mean, that, that's a dirty exchange. Your brother's like half starving, and you give him a bowl of split pea soup, which, I mean, Esau should have paid a penny for that. And, and it's lentil soup, right, or something like that. So Esau exchanges his birthright, but particularly with the blessing. How does Jacob get the blessing? Remember, like, he gets a sheepskin for his arms? I mean, Esau must have been a hairy dude. Like, when a sheepskin is like, Enough to confuse your dad, like, oh, yeah, that's Esau. Esau was an animal. <laughs> I mean, in the furry sense. So Esau goes hunting. Jacob comes in, has, has gotten together this fantastic meal, and Jacob gets the blessing, right? Gets Esau's blessing. What happens to Esau? He kind of becomes this footnote in history as these people alongside of God's people. But it's like he loses it. You, know, you, you watch the river of God's blessing flow. It looks like it's going to hit Esau. Jacob comes in and takes it, and the river turns and follows Esau's children, and Jacob's left holding nothing. It's kind of a sad story, but Esau's also not a righteous man. I mean, there's a reason he didn't get the blessing. He was not a man of faith. He was not pursuing these things. And and frankly, on purpose, he went out and married the wrong type of women. He married Canaanite women. And, and he did this partly just to poke his parents. And the dude was a bum. Jacob wasn't a whole lot better as a human being. And God blessed him anyway. And I think you see that blessing. Sometimes we miss it that Genesis is tracing that line of blessing because it's taking Genesis 3 and saying, hey, there's this descendant of Eve that's going to come and crush the serpent. And so we follow that line, and we come down to Jacob in, in the storylines of Genesis. All right, so Revelation. Um, Abraham <clears throat> is promised that he would have a seed to bless and fill the earth. Uh, number two, he's given land. Number three, his offspring will be blessed forever. And Abraham and his seed would be the means, the avenue through which God blesses others. This blessing was both physical 
as well as spiritual. There are personal, national, and universal aspects to these promises. I think it's helpful. If you, if you turn with me to Genesis 15 and 17, you see these covenants that God gives. So we talk about a covenant. Does anyone know what a covenant is? What? It's an agreement between two people? Okay, an agreement between, I would say, two parties. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's not a person. And they vary in um, depth and conditions. So we use contract to talk about formal, formal agreements a lot of times. Like, you know, your, your employer slides a piece of paper across and basically promises to relate to you by giving you money. You promise to work for them. And there's all sorts of stipulations like holiday pay and personal days and et cetera, et cetera. That contract is, is fairly common in our culture. We also have contracts on purchases of homes or things like this. So, so we're used to having formalized agreements. Covenants were, were their way of, of contracting agreements. And I think sometimes we make too much of them. Sometimes we make too little of them. Um, but God here is contracting, if I can use that word, in a very serious way with Abraham. If you look again in, in chapter 15, um, verse 5. It says, look towards the heaven, number the stars if you are able. And he said, so shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh. And the Lord, I'm putting that in there, it says he counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This is a significant point in salvation history. Because what happens in Genesis that Moses is writing down as record is how salvation was happening for them. What saved Abraham? It's hard to phrase that without setting up. If I say who saved Abraham, you get the answer. It's whom? The Lord. Who counted it to him? The Lord did. What was required of Abraham? Merely responding to God by holding on to his promises by faith. That is exactly Paul's point in Romans, that, that God does not save us when we do something. God saves us by his power without any aid or contribution on our behalf, when we respond to his saving work in faith. That's it. Shouldn't add to it. That is salvation from Genesis 3 to the end of the age. It is responding to our powerful God who is full of grace and mercy towards those who turn to him. And that is a salvation message we still carry. Uh, we continue on reading here. Uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to them, said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these to him, and he split them into parts down the middle and laid each part opposite the other, but he did not split apart the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Now, it happened when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, know for certain your seed will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Okay, we look at this covenant promise that God gives. It's kind of a bizarre picture. If, you, if you're walking with this, he takes a three-year-old heifer. What does he do with that three-year-old heifer? Like cow, right? What does he do with the cow? He hacks it in half, right? What else does he cut in half? A three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, and then the turtle dove and the pigeon, and he breaks their necks or something like that. Then he lays them in parts, right? Like a heifer half here, a heifer half here. A ram half here and a ram half here, a female goat here, the other half here, and maybe one bird on each side. And then he keeps the birds of prey from eating it, and then he does what? He falls asleep. And when he's asleep, God does covenant work. Why do you think God has him sleeping?
So God would show that the covenant had no requirements from Abraham. That is, God single-handedly, by himself, covenanted with whom? Himself to do good to Abraham. There was no other party standing between the animals covenanting. You know, if we think, if you picture the handshake going on here, there's animals on either side, God comes down, and God stands among the animals. Abraham's not there. Abraham's unconscious. And God guarantees that there will be a blessing through his seed forever. Come to chapter 17. If you look, you have the, this covenant happening again, except now we have a sign of circumcision. Abraham was 99, verse 1. Um, I am God Almighty, the Lord says. Walk before me and be blameless so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you, so that I may multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name shall be called Abraham, the father of many nations. Um, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. Verse 7, I will establish the covenant between me and you and your seed after you. Verse 8, I will give you and your seed after you the land of your sojourners, all the Canaanite, for an everlasting possession. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, and your seed after you. Every male shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is a sign of what covenant? With whom? We call this the Abrahamic covenant, all right? So let's go through on, on the notes on page 9. Abraham um, is given a covenant that the seed would be blessed for the earth, that the land would be his forever, and that the offspring would be blessed. You can see those scripture citations. I would like to encourage you to look those up. Uh, because we're trying to cover a lot of material here and not bore you to tears by spending a whole seminary class length in this study, we don't have time to look up every ind individual passage. We don't want to create people in our church who have loyalty to a theology and not scripture. Our, our, our theology is scripturally derived, so know the scripture. Read the book. Right, responsibility. Man has to believe the promises. Uh, number two, circumcision was a sign of faith and belief in the covenant promises. Circumcision is not a, was not meant to be a work that God looked favorably upon because of the work. It was an expression of faith. Uh, number three, it appears that those inside the covenant were not to intermarry outside the covenant. Right, when Eliezer, the servant, is sent to find an Abraham, uh, find an Abraham, find a wife for Abraham's son, where does he go? He goes back home, right? He goes back to their people. Um, Isaac was to stay in the land and receive God's blessing. Did they stay in the land? No, they didn't. Failure. Abraham lied to Pharaoh. He was impatient with the promises, uh, slept with his, his wife's uh, servant, um, ends up getting a son that's not really a, a not, he's not in the line of promise at least, although he is blessed. Number two, Abraham lies to Abimelech. Isaac lied to Abimelech. Jacob lied to Isaac. Lot lived in Sodom. Jacob's sons lied to the Canaanites. They betrayed their brother Joseph. And finally, Judah was faithless to Tamar. And you, when you read Genesis like 20 through 40, it's pretty rough. It would make a good cable series. Number three, ultimately Jacob's flight to Egypt also seems to be the epitome of their failure from, the land, from land promises. Right? They're, they're, I think by God's intent, God's plan includes our sin. That isn't to say God wants us to sin, but there, there's no doubt that God intended to preserve Israel in Egypt for a time. It seems like they overstayed out of laziness and faithlessness. They should have gone back home a lot sooner. They end up becoming slaves, and I think it's part of God's judgment, also his provision. When they leave Egypt, they are now coalescing into a nation of millions. They, they, they pillage Egypt. They get a lot of money from it. But there's a lot of judgment there. I mean, can you imagine living in a country where for, for decades maybe, every firstborn son is, is slaughtered by the Egyptians unless you can 
smuggle your own baby away from the Egyptian authorities and, like Moses, cause him to live? I mean, think about it. Moses doesn't come back to rescue Israel for 80 years. From birth, I mean, there's 80 years of living under that type of oppression. And so, obviously, they survived. Uh, so either a lot of mothers were able to smuggle their babies and the Egyptians weren't very thorough, or, or maybe the scripture is summarizing something that wasn't happening to every child. I'm not sure, but it'd be, I mean, it's pretty harsh when you have a society that's killing babies in their infancy, um, which is exactly what our country does. Judgment. Although the Bible does not explicitly condemn Israel for their time in Egypt, I think it's safe to say it wasn't acceptable. Grace. God speaks directly to the people. God makes a covenant with Abram. God's universal blessing will now go through a specific family, Abraham's line. Uh, this is unconditional, will not change. God accepts Abraham's faith. God blesses Isaac and Jacob despite their failures. God protects and blesses Joseph. God preserves Israel in Egypt. God expands Israel into a, popula uh, a populous nation while in Egypt. I, I, we got we to be recognizing that despite failure, God is still faithful and kind. If you don't see yourself, your need in our incredible God in the book of Genesis, you need to reread it. I mean, we, we are them, right? We, we do all sorts of bad things because of fear, because of worry, because of anxiety. Man, that's Abraham. He, he got his wife into a harem because he lied and was afraid. It's easy for us to look and be like, you bum. I'm not sure we would do better. Matter of fact, I think I can safely say, based on Abraham's character, I think we should expect not to do better. Okay, fellowship and rule. Fellowship is still based on faith and forgiveness through the sacrifice in this dispensation. These animal sacrifices were done at designated places. In fact, where was Isaac offered? Anyone know? Mount what? Mount Moriah. Does anyone know the other name for Mount Moriah? <laughs> it is today. It's, 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 the, it's the hill that the temple's built on in Jerusalem. And so from, from the first initial God calling of Abraham and those initial sacrifices, there's this continuity of place on these hills. And so the place where Abraham meets with God and God rescues his son Isaac and offers a substitutionary lamb will be the place where substitutionary lambs for generations will be sacrificed as a faith expression in the atoning work of the lamb who is to come. I think that's, that's not insignificant. It's not a small thing that that's where David retook the fortress of the Jebusites and established the place of God for the people of God. Um, Abraham's covenant provided the fulfillment for the dominion mandate through his seed. The birthright was the continuation of the blessings of God through Abraham's descendants. When Esau rejected the birthright, he stepped out of the path of God's covenant blessings. It's like, man, we look at that and we think, how foolish. Well, let me just encourage you towards faithfulness. Do not let go of the promises of God. Right, look at Esau and we think, man, what a dummy. And there are people who sat in this room who now deny the faith. They are modern-day Esau's. They see the blessing of God, they see the promises of God, and they think this life is more valuable than the life to come. Don't be an Esau. God's rule was chiefly through the patriarchal clans governed by the patriarchs who served as king priests. I think Job's probably the clearest example of this. Remember Job praying for his children, offering sacrifices for his children, lest they might have sinned God in their hearts? Remember Job? I mean, he's, he is standing between God and his family as a priest, pleading and praying and sacrificing and preaching for God and for his children as, as kind of a priestly work that he would do. I think you see that in, in all of the patriarchs. All right, continuing principles. Promises to Abraham continue. The land promises from the Euphrates to the Nile have never been fulfilled. Spiritual promises of nations being blessed is ultimately looking toward a seed of the woman, the ideal seed of Abraham. The, promised continue, uh, the promises continued into the next dispensation, according to Paul. In fact, in, in Romans, he says, the covenants 
belong, present tense, to Israel. Like the covenants are theirs, indicating that in Romans, in the church age, God still views a lot of these covenants as in effect and still viable. Like they haven't been just washed away by the age of the church. They're still in, in power. Uh, dispensation of the law. So, so now we're going to move probably to the most significant dispensation in the Old Testament because after you get to about Exodus 20, this is the essence of the Old Testament all the way through to Christ. So the law comes from the laws given by God at Sinai under Moses' leadership in Exodus 19. It's a legal document. It's a contract document. The Mosaic law code of over 600 commands revealed absolute moral character of God and his righteous standard for man. Notice that this assumes a national identity with God as monarch. God always intended there to be a king. The law code was set up for a king. So I think sometimes um, we can get this wrong. So we come to 1 Samuel, Israel wants a king, right? It's a good desire or a bad desire. So I, I think there was multiple problems with it and some good, and usually I will only hear the problems. When you read the, the Pentateuch, there's provisions for a king. Like, it was set up for a king to rule Israel. The problem is they, they kind of jump God's timeline. They're impatient. They want to do it because they're jealous of other nations, and they ultimately do it also as a rejection of God's kingship. So there's a lot of sinful hearts going on. You know, maybe, maybe in an analogy, you know, I want my children to grow up and to get families of their own, which means at some point I want to see them get married. But if my 12-year-old Charlie comes home from school on Friday and says, Dad, I'm engaged, we will have some problems. And, and it's not that I don't want to see her married. It's that I don't want to see my 12-year-old married. Israel wasn't ready for a king. My, my assumption is that David was ultimately God's designed king. And that if they had waited just another generation, God would have granted David as their messianic prototype for king. Instead, they jump the gun, they get Saul, and all the bad and baggage it brings. But I think sometimes we miss it. Deuteronomy really clearly tells us there's a king that's intended. God plans for a king to come, a human king. Um, all right, so the Old Testament laws we think are, uh, are particular to the covenant between the Lord and the prospective nation of Israel. Um, so there are 600 laws. Let me just say something about the laws because I think we do a bad job with them in a lot of different ways. Does anyone know what casuistic laws are? Maybe we could say it this way, case law. The word's casuistic. Okay, so, so there's a lot of case law stuff in the Old Testament that's meant to, to have legs for a culture. So, so you give a case law, for instance, um, you know, a man is called to build a parapet around his house. You, know, you use the rooftop of a house for a patio. So you climb up onto this rooftop. It's a flat roof, and you'd use it as a patio. So what's a parapet? It's, a, it's, a, it's usually a lower wall. Think like a two- to four-foot wall. Usually, usually smaller than that, but like think two-foot wall around the edges of the house. That keeps people from stumbling off your roof at night. Or, you know, if you're, having, if you're paying a laborer to put some supplies up on the roof for something later, and there's no wall and they fall off, that's a problem. Okay, so, so the law is something like this. A man has to build a parapet. Otherwise, he's liable if someone falls off and dies. But if he builds a parapet and someone falls off, well, they shouldn't have fallen off. That's their problem. So there's, there's like, that's a case law. There's a lot of other ways you could be liable for, for kind of a, a, a dangerous nuisance that you offer, but you're, you're called to protect people from it. So an application in today's culture might be something like this. If you have a pool, what do you have to have, in California at least? What? You have to have a fence, and the fence has to be lockable or alarmed or both. Now, why do we do this? I think it's because in the 70s, kids snuck into someone's pool and drowned. And now we, we say, okay, let's see if you have a pool. Kids like pools, especially in hot places like California. So protect kids from things that could kill them. And if they climb over a locked fence and die, that's not on you. But if they waltz through your unfenced 
yard, trip and fall into your pool because, you know, that's how they get in there, and they die, that is on you. Like, so, so case law is meant to help us think through situations. So like, in, in Israel, if the Lord had never abrogated the law with Christ, if he had never set it aside, um, that, that type of case law would be binding on Israel with parapets. But the expectation of the Lord was that it wouldn't only be used for parapets. That's why it's case law, is that you would recognize from this there's a principle of protection, there's a principle of duty, and it only goes so far. Right? Like if, if you have a parapet and you find a dead man next to your house who clearly fell off your parapet, what do you do? Are you guilty? No. I would just add, I think this is what our culture forgot with COVID. Right? Like there, there is a limited amount of liability you have, and it's for things you can protect others from. You are not responsible for keeping your brother from getting sick. You are responsible when you're sick from keeping your brother from getting sick from you. And, and our culture just locked down and totally forgot there is limited liability, not total liability. Um, so historically, I mean, here be another example. What did you do if you had some type of infectious skin disease in the Old Testament? Yeah, do you? Do you think God knows how germs spread? So what does the leper have to do? He has to go away and be unclean because he's infectious. Do you know who didn't have to isolate themselves and act like they were unclean? People who didn't have leprosy. I'm not going to say clean. You don't know. You just know they don't have leprosy. This is how God has governed his people. The idea that you would quarantine healthy people is actually a rejection of the principles of Moses' law. And I think there's no reason those principles don't carry through in terms of principles, not as binding authority, but as how you govern a good society. God knows what he's doing. So there are some times where, like for instance, you drive while you text your cell phone, you are, you are being recklessly, recklessly endangering of other people's lives, right? Like you're violating the principles of the law. You kill someone while you're driving drunk, if you're texting, you are guilty before God. On the other hand, while being careful, while being thoughtful, an accident happens, the Old Testament law would also walk you through how to think and how to process that. I think those are helpful because the Old Testament law, in giving cases, can move us forward to a modern age with cell phones and swimming pools. That's how case law is meant to work. Okay, so the word for that is casuistic. It's case. So it's, it's meant for the law to have legs so that it can apply to all situations. I think we don't do a good job of working the Old Testament law to help ourselves understand how to live in light of this world. I don't think I, I heard hardly anyone dealing with issues of liability and infectious diseases from the law. It just seems like it's there. Like it's so simple. Um, I don't mean simple as in easy. I mean simple as in it's just black and white. It's text. Read it and do it. The Old Testament laws um, were also a covenant. I, I have this. If you look to page 12, I think this is really, really valuable to me in understanding dispensationalism. This is why I'm not worried about eating pork. Because if I recognize what the law is, I can jump into it and learn without feeling obligated in ways I shouldn't. Okay, so um, let me just go to the, that box and then we'll call it a day. The law is given at Sinai as a covenant. Uh, the greater king promises to protect a vassal. That's kind of the cultural terminology is a, is a king to vassal or king to subject type of thing. Uh, the, the technical word you'd see like in a journal article is suzerain vassal treaty. Um, so, so the king promises to protect and, and to provide. The people promise to obey and, and to do right. The stipulations or requirements that were given are common. Blessing was given for obedience. Cursing was given for disobedience. In the ancient Near East, covenants were commonly made with five elements. A preamble, a prologue, stipulations, do this, a list of witnesses, and a statement of curses and blessings. We have this in the Old Testament law. God has a preamble. 
I am the Lord your God. Prologue, who brought you out of Egypt? Stipulations, we would maybe think the Ten Commandments and more. Witnesses, 12 pillars, curses and blessings. Israel is to be God's special nation, a treasured people. The Mosaic Law was a particular covenant for them alone. I no more have a duty to cherish, love, and sacrifice myself as a husband to any of you women than than you would have obligation to the covenant with Israel and Yahweh. It's a sacred covenant that's something else to you. Does that make sense? In other words, Carol and Dennis are in covenant relationship with each other as a husband and wife. If Carol came to me and says, hey, Mark, you need to do your covenant obligations to me, I'd say, wait, what? I need groceries. You need to provide, Mark. Like, yeah, I do. I better get my wife groceries. You're not my covenant wife. We look at Israel, sometimes we forget the Old Testament law code is basically looking into covenantal relationship between God and a party named Israel. You're not Israel. Right? Therefore, the stipulations, the blessings, the commands, the curses are special to them. Now, this is significant because like David doing the Goliath thing is looking at covenant blessings and promises. He is saying, hey, I'm in a certain type of special relationship with Yahweh. He is obligated to do certain things for me if I do certain things for him. This is one of those situations. I'm going to do it. And God's on the, on the account as promising to back me. That's why David is so confident. So when someone jumps in that text and is like, hey, go kill your Goliaths, I'm like, Oh, man, there's so much work we have to do to get to a place where we know this. But we want to make sure we understand it, too. Did God keep his promise to David? Was it, was it a type of expression of faith that was unusual for Israel in those days? It was incredible. And I think, I think we can also do a disservice by acting like somehow that has no relevance for us today. Is God a covenant-keeping God? And when you look around and you see, like, there is no spiritual movement in our culture, maybe you can doubt that like all the people of Israel did. God keeps his promises. Make sure you know which promises are yours and live by faith. That's one of the things I learned from David. It doesn't matter what pressing threat, like how real the threat is. Big guy with sword. That's a real pressing, present, tangible danger. And he faces it. I think sometimes we have a hard time facing our grocery bill and trusting that God will provide according to his promises to provide those who seek his kingdom first. But he does. And that's where, to me, the, the, the David account has, has power in my life to rebuke and encourage and comfort. I hope it does for you too. I'll finish um, up dispensation of the law next week. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for being a covenant-keeping God. Thank you for being faithful to your promises. Amen.